Can you speak to some of the confusion, sadness, and disillusionment that can result from loosening one's grip on the self? Though self is an illusion, it seems quite central to how we create meaning in our lives. Actually, I feel like many of the questions that uh, were submitted, at least on the written one today, um, I feel like I'm just going to reflect around them. Uh, they're they're uh, profound enough questions that you know I don't know that there's like who the answer you know so just this is these are reflections I offer reflections so again can you speak to some of the confusion sadness and disillusionment that can result from loosening one's grip on the self the self is an illusion it seems quite central to how we create meaning in our lives. I would say this is uh, our our um, usual way of creating meaning in our lives, and it's very um, involved with the sense of self. And yes, as we do start loosening, seeing through the illusion, seeing th- seeing through the the uh, basically idea or concept that our minds is creating about self. We start recognizing that what we have taken to be self is more of an idea than a reality, a self-created, uh, a mind-constructed idea, mind construct, a mind-construct, a, a, a formation. It is a mental formation. As that starts to be unveiled, as it starts to be revealed, from the perspective of self, it feels really uncomfortable. And so this is kind of the, 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 uh, the paradox, well not paradox, but the kind of work that um, we explore that the, the sense of self it's kind of like the ultimate filter. And we've been talking about filters um, in our experience, you know, the filter of anger and how that makes us see things and the filter of greed and how that makes us see things. The sense of self and uh, is, is another one of those filters. And when that filter is uh, operating I kind of said last night, one of the things I said last, n- last night was when that filter's operating, it's very difficult to see evidence to the contrary. And yet, as we start to see evidence to the contrary, as we start to uh, recognize in moments, we start to recognize um, the uh, illusory nature of that and the concept is a concept arising. Uh, the uh, idea we, s- we we begin to recognize self as as, a, as an idea rather than a reality. In moments we may see that, but yet the the filter of self comes back. I, you know, I talked about how delusion kind of 
slips away and we see something and then the filter comes back, the delusional filter comes back. And so the delusional filter of self comes back and when that uh, perspective is thinking back about the idea or thinking back about the reflection or, or thinking back about uh, this loosening that's happening, when that filter is there thinking about, so the filter of self is there thinking about uh, this is, is illusion, it creates a kind of a uncomfortable experience. Sadness, confusion can happen there. It is from the perspective of self that that sadness and confusion are there. You might explore this a little bit. At times, if for moments, there's a sense of no Uh, or a sense of seeing through that process as um, seeing through the way that we identify that process as being solid in a moment of, of seeing through that. When it's, it, when it's uh, clearly seen through, the releasing from the identity, the releasing from the grip of that identity in that moment, in that moment, it's a relief. It's a huge burden that feels like it's just been, oh, wow. And yet that burden gets picked back up and we see things through that perspective again and we think back and it's like, but who am I if I don't exist or, you know, what is the meaning if I don't exist? And so again, it's the, these, these questions of confusion and sad sadness and disillusionment um, are from the perspective of, are, are from the perspective of self. It's the filter of self that is, uh, I think, relating to the idea of not-self. Not-self gets turned into a concept too. And when this sense of self thinks about the concept of not-self, it doesn't make any sense and it is confusing. And the, the practice around this is not to try to get rid of the confusion or sadness, but to really acknowledge and open to the, the truth of the, from, from this, in this moment, in this moment, there's a sense of, uh, there's lots of different relationships we can have to this. It might be fear, 
It might be um, confusion. It might be sadness. So different relationships we can have in terms of this um, perspective of self thinking about not self. <laughs> um, and to, to, to recognize it or honor, okay, th- this is what's happening right now. This is, this is uh, the truth, the emotional reality, the emotional truth of this moment is that as what's arising right now, as the mind and body processes are arising right now or are contemplating meaning in my life, in life, and contemplating this idea of not-self, there's this confusion. Okay, that's what's happening in the moment. Know that. One thing I'll say more is uh, the, the, the point in the question about self being a central way we create meaning in our lives. This, it feels like it holds a little bit of the, again, the perspective of self is that it cannot envision any other way meaning could be created in our lives without the sense of self. It's kind of a self-referential kind of process and can't see outside of itself. So uh, if, you know, the, the sense of self is the sense of how we create meaning and, get a- and have a sense of meaning in our lives, the sense of self believes that if not self is true, life would be meaningless. And this is a mistaken idea. In my in my in my uh, view, that um, well, depending on what you mean by meaning, um, wisdom acts, love acts, compassion acts, and without the greed, aversion, and delusion, these become the motivating forces in our lives. And in some ways it feels like there's no question of meaning anymore. It is wisdom responding to suffering or joy, just very naturally. The 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 organism and it, it doesn't seem to just sit in a blob. <laughs> it it responds. It responds to suffering. It it acts to try to alleviate suffering. It responds to joy. It celebrates in response to joy. It takes action. And the the meaning. From the outside, I think, even though if from the inside it may not, you know, be be uh, motivated or or a sense of uh, the idea of meaning, because it feels to me like just a very natural. It seems like just a very natural, responsive process. 
mean, we think about the Buddha, the Buddha fully awakened. And from the outside, it sure seems like that life had meaning. 2,600 years later, that life had meaning. And so the, uh, the reflection on the meaning of life with respect to the sense of self may be a kind of a limited perspective of meaning. And so it takes some trust to kind of leap into, I, I talked last night in the, in the evening reflection around just stepping into the unknown in each moment. And the stepping into the unknown of the meaning of life. As the sense of self begins to release and be understood as just a process and concept. So is there a question in the room? A question? Yeah. Um, so the question about is about the um, the instruction or um, uh, suggestion around working with a reactive state around an object, with especially around aversion. If there's a, an object arising and there's aversion to it, to uh, put the attention or to to be interested in exploring the aversion rather than the object, and uh, just some elaboration on that. Um, um, I think that instruction can be used differently in diff at different times, depending on what's happening, how strong the aversion is. Um, so sometimes it might feel like we let go of the object and just let the attention much more fully investigate the aversion. Um, you know, it might be that we are actually asking questions about the aversion. How does the aversion impact the body? What purpose is this aversion serving? Um, what kind of thoughts does this aversion create? And just beginning to see, you know, kind of curious about the aversion. That's a, a more directed uh, approach of letting go of the object and exploring the aversion. 
as the mindfulness gets stronger, uh, part of my uh, experience sometimes is that, or maybe it says the aversions aren't as strong. I'm not sure, actually. Um, that the uh, that what can sometimes happen is that there's the object that we're averse to and the aversion, and we kind of step back and we know both. So, oh yeah, there's there's that thing happening and I don't like it. And it's just kind of, and, and it, with that kind of approach, we start to really recognize the relationship of how the object is experienced with the fluctuation of the aversion. So we may notice a kind of strengthening or weakening of the aversion, and as the aversion weakens, we may notice a radically different relationship to the object. As the aversion strengthens, we may notice you know, that the you know, pain, for example, we can really see this with pain, that as, the, as there's pain, the object pain and the aversion around pain, as the aversion weakens, we recognize that the pain is not so problematic. It may even be just this little twinge. And as the aversion gets stronger, it sure feels like that pain is much stronger. So we begin to see the relationship between the, uh, the aversion and the object more fully there. So it's functioned differently for me at different times. Yeah. Oh, another way that's happened around this investigation too, uh, this is more for me if, um, if the, uh, both the object and the aversion are more sticky. So for instance, there may be the object and the aversion and a reaction to the aversion. You know, so, so sometimes then I find it really helpful to take a really big lens and just uh, kind of, s I, I say, okay, like just remind myself, there's thousands of other things happening in the present moment other than that object and the aversion. <laughs> And really just taking a big view. It's like, right, there's sight happening. There's sound happening. Oh, there's that uh, object and aversion happening. Oh, right. Oh, there's a, there's a thought. Oh, there's a sound. And so just kind of having a bigger container. Again, not trying to push away the object and the aversion, but also neither like having them be the focus. So it's, it's more like letting them be um, objects that, are within the field of what is known, but consciously stepping back and recognizing, mm, yeah, there's more happening here. Because sometimes um, when there's a strong reactivity in the mind, it like um, just makes the mind very uh, blind. It's like that's all it's seeing. And if we can consciously step to a larger perspective, it can sometimes help us to hold that with more balance. So that's a third way that I've explored. That's, that's really helpful. I think the confusion in a way was that when I started looking at it, it seemed like that practice could be almost anything, which it, I think it, it really is. I mean, th there are all kinds of ways of practicing, and then in a way it's, it's, just an, it, it, it's, it's probably at its essence an invitation not to think you have to dive into the object. Yes. Yeah, and, and to me it also gets very intuitive. You know, it's not, it's not like there's like a rule, you know. If this, this kind of investigation, if that, this, it, 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 it starts to feel much more intuitive. And, you know, I encourage 
you know, having talked about the variety of ways, I encourage play. You know, try this one for a little while, see how that works. Try this one for a little while, see how that works. And just, you know, see, you know, be willing to explore the, uh, the practice as part of the causes and conditions that are contributing to what's happening in the moment. You know, when we engage in, in mindfulness and awareness and how we use attention, it's contributing to our experience. And so noticing, well, let's try this way. Let's see what happens. Well, let's try this way. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Thank you. I'll take another one of these. Would you reflect on unreliability and why we might choose to do certain things anyway, like work, art, relationships? Yeah, there's kind of two sides of this one, I think, at least. <laughs> um, one is, again, like with the idea of unreliability, kind of like the idea of not-self, we might um, create the view that what's the point? What's the point of engaging in anything? So kind of similar in a way to this meaning question. the understanding of unreliability understands there's the clinging to something that is impermanent is useless. because it understands that clinging to something that is impermanent you know, as a way to find happiness is destined for dukkha. And yet again, um, wisdom acts Compassion acts, love acts, generosity acts. And so, you know, from the perspective, again, of uh, the idea of unreliability, from that perspective of that idea, it feels like, what's the point? When wisdom is acting, it doesn't ask the point. It doesn't ask what's the point. When love is asking, it doesn't ask what's the point. It acts and responds. Wisdom acts and responds. And so these actions in the world may engage in relationship, in creation, in work.
again, thinking of the Buddha, you know, his life was one of engagement in teaching and relationship. Some ways creativity, his expression of the Dharma. So that's one kind of way or perspective to answer, reflect on that question. Um, And the other side is, is like from a more almost mundane approach or a mundane level, we are living in the world and uh, creating the idea of somehow what it would be to be not clinging and trying to make our life fit that idea like you know oh if I really understood everything were unreliable then I wouldn't want to do these things that's again that's an idea that comes from a already confused perspective. And we, in that perspective, we we engage in our lives. We, um, We have relationships, we engage in work, and we explore, I think I've used in some of the groups, I don't remember in the hall if I've talked about letting suffering be the guide. You know, the, the idea of um, you're engaged in work or relationship and some aspects of that relationship may contain dukkha. Those aspects of the relationship may be where uh, you are trying to pin your hopes on something unreliable. That would be helpful to observe, get to know, reflect on, look at. See if you can understand the clinging of that, that piece of the suffering. Other aspects of that relationship may be offering um, practice and deepening and understanding around love. And so well, why have the idea or think of the idea of, oh, if I understood this relationship is unreliable, then I would, I don't know, wouldn't be engaged in it. It's like there's learning happening, there's growth happening, there's heart connection happening, there's you know, beautiful things happening in that relationship also. Those don't feel like suffering until there's clinging around them. And, you know, too, I think sometimes the... Uh, you know, the exploration around love in particular, I think I've talked about this in the hall a little bit, that as um, we explore the, the, the heart that is not closed, the heart that is open and connected, 
we see it doesn't need anything in response, that it is It is, it is naturally um, uh, connecting and doesn't actually need the relationship to be reliable. That's the piece I was trying to get to. <laughs> the love, the connection, engages in relationship without needing the reliability. And we see, I think likewise with art and with uh, work, you know, the the connection in those, the, uh, the heart that is not contracted will engage in those without needing that activity to be reliable. I mean, something like art, I can see, is almost a, a dive into the present moment. You know, I, s- I see some artists that seem like that's their meditation. It's not so much about the result you know, what's created. So it's more about just the process. And to me, that's, that's a lot of what the, the open heart, the wise heart um, moves towards. It's not about the result. It's not about trying to find something reliable. It's about moving in the world, acting in the world, in spite of unreliability. And recognizing, of course, as we do this, that there's going to be contraction as our minds rebel, <laughs> rebel against unreliability. So we, uh, we notice that push-pull around things being unreliable. That's that's where we meet the suffering. That's where we let suffering be our guide right there. Feeling that push-pull around unreliability. Another question from the room? I do, I do know, I mean, one thing, this is not directly related to your question in one way, but it popped in as a kind of a a reflection. Um, There's one book that I've read, uh, I haven't actually gotten all the way through it, but uh, quite of the ways through it, it's called um, Self Comes to Mind by a neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio. Um, And his um, exploration in that book has a lot to do with looking at, you know, uh, gosh, it's been so long since I read it, but um, looking at how the evolution of the sense of self happens. 
know, he he fully recognizes that the sense of self is a process constructed in the mind, but he's interested in how is that evolutionarily, you know, coming to be. And one of the pieces that he, he points to is that as the organisms became more complex, so there's a single-celled organism, it's very directly responding to the world. It doesn't have a nervous system, right? It's just got its sensors out there. And if it's like in the terrain of noxious chemicals, it's going to go away. If it's, if it's in the terrain of something nourishing, it's going to go towards that. It's just got this like, it's basically got the feeling mechanism, pleasure, on um, displeasure um, dis and pain. Uh, probably doesn't have the consciousness mechanism as far as I can tell. I mean, there's, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I don't know what it's got. <laughs> probably doesn't have self-reflexive consciousness. Um, but anyway, so the, the organism has a self-protective kind of thing to keep itself alive. That seems to be what organisms do. They keep themselves alive. They, that's their job. And as the organisms got more complex, uh, like this organism, um, it, it uh, you know, like we touch something and we feel it, um, you know, and, and certainly there's a certain kind of, apparently like a very low level in the, in the spine, I think, if we touch something hot or something that will, so, so kind of, very quick reactivity for certain kinds of um, stimulus that come in. But largely, what's happened in our more complex nervous system, he says, this is my understanding of what he says, is that um, the, uh, the, the brain created a map of the body and that the function of the nervous system is to protect the map because it's more efficient. It's quicker. The process of the, pro the, 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 the um, neurological processes of protecting the map are quicker than somehow it going out and traveling out to protect, you know, so, so the, 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 a lot of the processes at play in terms of our movement and pleasure and pain and uh, what we like, what we don't like, what we react to, what we, is our, our organism protecting a construct in the brain, which to me is very similar to what the Buddha says around the functions of the constructs of mind and that we take those to be real and uh, work with protecting those, defending those, something like that. So that's, that's uh, if you're interested, I, if you're interested in that kind of thing, that I found that book to be kind of illuminating. But he didn't much talk about, I mean, he might, I didn't think about it from the perspective of five aggregates as I was reading it, but he might have, addressed it in there. I don't know. Another question from the room.
back to the first couple of questions. Um, see if I can frame this. Um, so we've spoken a lot uh, about here and uh, about about no self um, and recognizing the process. Process nature of, of who we think we are, or not the self. Um, it's not said, but um, well, let me. I'm, I'm constructing this as I'm thinking. Um, I'm wondering about um, the, the pro our processes are not the same. Self, um, we never speak too much about developing or looking at them, and I, I think there's good reason why. But I wonder if you would address that question of uh, um, developing skills that one has and um, how it relates. So this is a, not a question I've thought much about, but I'll offer a few thoughts, reflections. Um, um, first, the teachings, you know, as the Buddha said, you know, what I teach is suffering in the end of suffering. So the, the orientation of the teachings is around letting go of greed, aversion, and delusion. And um, what results, what the being opens to when greed, aversion, and delusion are released, the Buddha doesn't actually say much about what that is. My own experience with people I don't know how enlightened they are or were, um, but, you know, visiting various really delightful, lovely beings in Burma in the hills of Sagain. Um, boy, they're very different. One guy I would go and just love to just sit in his presence. He just, like, oozed peace and tranquility. I just felt like my mind got quiet just sitting in his presence. Another guy, another monk, he was just, he was so happy. I just got happy in his presence. Well, the last time I saw him, I, no, maybe it wasn't. I think the net previous, the, the second to last time I saw him. Um, he's died now. 
he has died. He was like 92 years old or something. Um, he, uh, he was sitting in this chair. He was kind of shriveled up and like he had not moved in days because he'd been really sick. And uh, I, I, it's interesting because I envision him, I, I remember him as if he was speaking to me in English, but he doesn't speak in any English. So I must have been speaking through a translator, but somehow it's like a, a transmission. I got this transmission from him. And what he said was, I almost died a few days ago. <laughs> So, you know, uh, beings open as greed, aversion, and delusion release, beings open to their personalities, but those personalities, I think, without the contraction, without the, the uh, holding, without the neediness, without the anger and confusion, and, you know, I think whatever skills we have, we would probably, you know, naturally gravitate towards cultivating those in wholesome ways. It's like this being is going to do something. It will probably gravitate towards what it has to offer in the world. And so, you know, I think we can you know definitely not try to repress or suppress our kind of natural inclinations and you know noticing where in those natural inclinations there's the contraction the the things that stop it up my sense is that those skills will only get stronger and more useful as greed, aversion, and delusion lesson. But the Buddha doesn't have much to say about it, uh, as far as I can tell. I'll take another from here. Can you clarify, a five aggregate question. Can you clarify where awareness falls among the five aggregates. Also, is insight a perception or something else? I hadn't thought about what insight is, but I, we'll see. I'll have some thoughts here too. So, um, the word awareness, I actually have not defined it here so much. Uh, I've been using it shading between two meanings, basically. Between the meaning of mindfulness, uh, kind of the, and the process of, uh, you know, Saito Utejaniya actually uses awareness in two, kind of two ways. One to just mean mindfulness, and another to mean kind of the whole process of the meditating mind, which includes how wisdom is working and how uh, effort is working and energy and how concentration is happening and 
how faith is working, kind of the, the whole workings of the meditating mind together. He uses awareness to mean that also. So those two meanings of awareness both fall in the uh, realm of mental formations. They're both in the realm of uh, shaping. Mindfulness and wisdom will shape our experience. Another way that sometimes I let the meaning of awareness slide into the... um, the uh, simple knowing, which we've talked about consciousness, that, the, that just simple cognizing function of the mind. Sometimes uh, when I talk about awareness of awareness, I shade between, it's, yeah, it's I shade between awareness of mindfulness being aware of the moment of mindfulness returning and being aware of there's the object of experience and there's the knowing of that object and we can be aware of the knowing. And so sometimes aware of awareness might also shade into the aware of the knowing function of the mind. And so sometimes awareness might mean... um, the consciousness aggregate. And the word awareness, in terms of its use in Western Dharma circles, you basically need to ask your, the person who's using that word how they're using it, because there's no agreement <laughs> on what it means. <laughs> Uh, I like the ambiguity of the word because our experience is often kind of shifting. So, um, so that's that's kind of where awareness might could be one or the other. Uh, mindfulness. If we look at mindfulness, mindfulness is a volitional formation. Consciousness, the knowing factor of the mind, is the consciousness aggregate. So we can distinguish them that way, you know. Um, and then insight. I'll speak first about wisdom. Wisdom is the mental formation which makes insight possible. And this is kind of my way into thinking about this question. And I was reflecting, well, okay, so, you know, wisdom, wisdom's a mental formation. Wisdom shapes experience. Wisdom decides, wisdom chooses, wisdom acts. So it's a mental formation. But the results of wisdom in terms of seeing, insight arising, that may be perception. I was think I, I I just think about my own you know small insights. There is kind of just a sense of recognition, um, and then in reflecting on what the Buddha had to say, because that's in my I have a fairly I've read a lot of the texts, and so those kind of come in as I reflect on questions like this, and in um, in terms of these 
three general characteristics or general functions, qualities of experience that I was, you know, kind of starting to talk about the the characteristic of impermanence that all experience, all experience uh, impermanent, unreliable, not self. The word characteristic is often used to refer to those. Sounds like an attribution of a property. Experience is unreliable. Experience is not self. Something like that. That word characteristic as applied to those three things, like to experience as characteristics of experience, um, is apparently later. It was not sutta-based. The Buddha, when talking about those characteristics, I can't, it's hard not to use the word. <laughs> when the Buddha talked about impermanence, unreliability, not self, he said, cultivate the perception of impermanence. Cultivate the perception of unreliability. Cultivate the perception of not-self. Understanding those to be uh, um, ex- ex- an exploration of how we know experience, perceive experience, that frees the mind. He was, I think, more interested in uh, our experience than he was in saying anything about the nature of reality. He was more interested in exploring what is the experience we can begin to uh, recognize experience as impermanent. That's a perception, a perception. We can only really know our experience through our perceptions. So what we understand, what we know about experience is through perception, knowing and feeling. So he encouraged us to to move in that direction. And so um, from that standpoint, we think about the insights actually that the Buddha pointed us to were impermanent, unreliable, not self. And he encouraged us to cultivate those as perceptions. So perhaps these insights are perceptions. but I'm not sure. (laughs) And maybe we should stop there. Let's sit for a few minutes. (laughs) 